Welcome to another episode of the Tom Trimmer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Hope everyone had a great weekend. Of course, I'm in Des Moines, Iowa today and tomorrow for the two-day grading from the Inside Out training, then off to San Diego for Wednesday, Thursday, before heading back to Honolulu on Friday. So lots going on and certainly a lot to look forward to. Again, a reminder, there is still time to register for the other upcoming events this spring. Grading from the Inside Out virtual training will be April 5th and 12th. I'll be in San Antonio face-to-face April 25th and 26th. Standards-based learning in action two-day training will be two days after that, so 27th and 28th of April. Uh, so four days in San Antonio is always a good thing. Uh, if you're looking for a summer conference this coming July, the annual conference on assessment and grading will be in Austin, Texas, July 18th to 20th. So if you're looking for a summer conference, along with myself, the conference will feature Cassandra Erkins, Angie Fries, Garnet Hillman, Tony Reibel, Mandy Stalitz, and Katie White. Many past guests on the podcast, of course, and some future ones as well. All of the information for those events can be found on the Solution Tree website. I'll have links in the show notes for them uh, so you can find your way there. Okay, as always, thanks for tuning in again this week. A big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time, and a big thank you to longtime listeners. I appreciate all of you. This week, my guest is author and education leader Jimmy Casas. He is the author of the book Culturize, which I proceed to mispronounce several times during our conversation, uh, but that is going to be the focus of our conversation today. And in Assessment Corner, I'm going to talk about a question I get a lot, and that is, Tom, how many questions should I have on a summative assessment? So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. My conversation with Jimmy Cassis is coming up, but first, don't at me. But I want to open this week by asserting that on the net, virtue signaling is a good thing. I've always thought there was a bit of an irony to that expression, virtue signaling, and I'm going to get to that in a moment. But by definition, virtue signaling is the action or practice of publicly expressing opinions or sentiments intended to demonstrate one's good character or the moral correctness of one's position on a particular issue. That's bad? Well, it certainly is in today's society. It's definitely looked upon as a slight. Now, we certainly heard the virtue signaling accusations in the spring of 2020 with the acute rise of the Black Lives Matter movement in the wake of George Floyd's murder. You know, people asserting like, don't think that posting a black square on your Instagram page is going to fix systemic racism. You're just virtue signaling. You need to do the real work. Now, now that's all true. But I don't think anyone thought the black square on Instagram was going to fix systemic racism. If it were that easy, then... We should just rotate the colors each week, right? All right, people. Next week, it's blue squares on Instagram because we are going to eliminate homelessness. That's it. Blue squares. Done. No one thinks that. But isn't something, doing something better than nothing, isn't signaling that you're with a cause better than not signaling that you're with a cause? Why criticize people for doing something? I think there are only two reasons why someone would hurl the virtue signaling accusation as a disparaging comment towards you. First, the first reason, they're doing more than you about a particular issue. So they want to make sure that you understand that between the two of us, I'm the one that's really doing the work. I'm the one that's really committed to the cause. Your little gesture is meaningless compared to what I do. Isn't that a little ironic? They're signaling that you're signaling. <laughs> so they're doing more than you. The second reason someone would criticize you virtual signaling or whatever 
is that they're doing less than you about a particular issue. So rather than rise even to your level of action, they dismiss your efforts as nothing more than a performative exercise designed to draw attention. Now, this is a convenient way to justify their inaction, right? They just pull people down to their level rather than raise their game. Oh, you're just virtue signaling. That's no big deal. There is no doubt a cynical side to virtue signaling, for sure. But it would be my contention that on the net, it's a good thing. Again, not all good, but on the net, I'd rather be accused of virtue signaling than inaction. Now, I thought I might be in the minority on this, so I did a little bit of a search on the internet to see if I could find an article or anybody else that was sort of talking about this, anyone else who shared my thinking, and I found an essay uh, written by Jeffrey Miller. Now, this essay is exerted from uh, his book, Virtue Signaling Essays on the Darwinian Politics and Free Speech. So uh, that, that's what the book is called. But these are a, it's a series of essays that are in, in that book. And I'll put a link in the show notes to the full essay uh, so you can read the entire piece. But here's how Miller opens the piece. And I, I think this is spot on. He says, we all virtue signal. I virtue signal. You virtue signal, we virtue signal. And those guys over there in that political tribe we don't like, they especially virtue signal, just as they believe that we do. Let's not pretend otherwise, Miller writes. We are humans, and humans love to show off our moral virtues, ethical principles, religious convictions, political attitudes, and lifestyle choices to other humans. We have virtue signaled ever since prehistoric big game hunters shared meat with the hungry folks in their clan or cared for kids who weren't their own. Our descendants will continue to virtue signal to each other in Mars colonies and on spaceships heading for other star systems. As humans colonize the galaxy, virtue signaling will colonize the galaxy. That's how he opens the piece. And he's right. We all do it. Just look at social media and examine how many times people are signaling that they really get it. You know, just so we're clear, people, I'm on the right side of this cause, right? So many white people rushing to signal in the spring of 2020 and beyond, going out of their way to signal that they are also against systemic racism. But why is that seen as bad? That's a good thing, right? It's for sure not enough, but why criticize that? Why, why not say that's, you know, that's a good first step? I mean, think about that as you listen to more from Jeffrey Miller in this essay. And what I've done here is I've kind of synthesized different parts of the essay. So again, follow the link in the show notes to read the entire piece. But here's some of the things that he writes about in, in, the, in the piece. He says, there's virtue signaling and then there's virtue signaling, right? Virtue signaling includes the best of human instincts and the worst of human instincts. The best because virtue signaling is the best foundation for human morality towards strangers that we could reasonably expect from a process as blind and as heartless as genetic evolution. Yet virtue signaling can also be the worst of human instincts. It drives most of partisan politics, especially on social media. It drives the demands to censor, fire, cancel, or ostracize people who express wrong opinions. And some of this is cheap talk, he says, but some of it is reliable signaling. What distinguishes good virtue signaling from bad virtue signaling isn't just reliability of the signal. It's the actual real-world efforts on sentiment beings, on societies, and civilizations, 
right? When the instincts to virtue signal are combined with curiosity about science, open-mindedness about values and viewpoints, rationality about priorities and policies, and strategic savvy about ways and means, then wonderful things can happen. So again, that was a synthesis of what he talks about in that piece. Virtue signaling can have many positive effects. First, it's a way to hold ourselves accountable. Most of us have zero interest in being labeled a hypocrite. So when we signal, we have to put our money where our mouths are, so to speak. If all you did was post a black square on Instagram and called yourself an activist, then the hypocrisy is evident. I guess the question is, do I need to announce or post about my activism? If I do, you say I'm signaling. If I don't, you say I'm inactive. But for most of us, any public proclamations come with an internal accountability sense, right? To uphold that which we've made public. Virtue signaling can also have a positive impact on other people, since it's through these various signals that we become aware of a cause or an issue, right? I might not otherwise know about it. So your post on social media may cause me to be more curious about an issue. Seeing you at the homeless shelter or at the food bank may cause an introspective reflection on my part that causes me to take action. Yes, there is virtue signaling that fills the ego and is cynically driven by the attention and social mileage one might gain. There is, of course, no better way to manufacture or manipulate the way others see you than to signal what you're supposedly about, even if, even if you're not really about it. There's also the virtue signaling that comes with the overzealous attempt to cancel people, right? At some point, we have to be able to make the rather simple distinction between egregious acts like racial discrimination or sexual assault and just canceling people for sport because you have the internet and are either jealous of them or you're bored with your own life. So yes, there is definitely an ugly side, but I think we need to be cautious about immediately hurling the virtue signaling accusations at others. My guess, and, and it's only a guess, is that the accusation is driven from either insecurity or self-doubt. You know, I see someone doing something toward an important social cause. I realize that I'm not doing anything, and maybe I don't want to do anything, so I just hurl the virtue signaling comment at that person because rather than join their cause, I'm going to knock them down. They think they're so great and holy, Watch this. So while there are many grave downsides to virtue signaling for sure, for me, virtue signaling is a net positive. I'd rather be accused of virtue signaling than apathy. Whether or not I'm doing enough is a conversation for a different day, and that's fair. But my performative virtue signaling could actually cause someone else to immerse themselves in a social cause even more than I have. And that, despite my superficial gesture may end up being a net positive. So for me, throwing shade at someone by accusing them of virtual signaling is, a very, is very low on the priority list. Instead of trying to shame them, how about we use a little finesse to help others come to the realization that there's even more that they could do? We all think our causes are the most important causes, but honestly, there are too many causes for one to be on fire about all of them. We have to choose where we put our energy. So the fact that someone has given even a little of their time, a little of their energy, and a little of their attention to any cause is a win in my book. Three, two, one, hey! 
Here this week for the interview is Jimmy Cassis. Jimmy served 22 years as a school leader, including 14 years as principal at Bettendorf High School. And under his leadership, Bettendorf was named one of the best high schools in the United States three times by Newsweek and U.S. News and World Report. In 2012, Jimmy was named Iowa Secondary Principal of the Year. 2013, he was the runner-up for the NASP Secondary Principal of the Year. And in 2014, Jimmy was invited to the White House to speak on the Future Ready Schools Pledge. Jimmy is also the author of eight books, including the best-selling book, Culturalize, uh, Every Student, Every Day, Whatever It Takes. That is going to be our focus today. Jimmy is the owner and CEO of Jimmy Cassis and Associates. In January 2020, Jimmy launched his own publishing company called Connect Ed. That is quite the resume, Jimmy. You are of a lot going on. Uh, I'm excited you're here. So welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you, Tom. I appreciate it. And looking forward to the conversation today. So thanks again for reaching out. Appreciate it, buddy. Yeah, appreciate you having uh, the time to be here. Uh, certainly been familiar with you and your work over a number of years, but you and I have never met. So this is a great opportunity, no. to good excuse to meet to have a conversation. And we're going to focus on some of the content uh, from Culturize, Culturalize, I should say. Uh, but before we do that, uh, for listeners who may not be as familiar with you or your work, uh, let's start with the arc of your career. Let's highlight for us maybe the professional journey so far and, and how you ended up here as this sort of prolific author, this prolific speaker. H how did you end up here professionally? Yeah, well, first of all, I started my career as the classroom teacher in Milwaukee Public Schools, uh, te teaching bilingual education. I was actually a middle school teacher first. Uh, and then good fortune had it, just had some people who, you know, apparently saw some potential in me maybe, and then uh, encouraged me to go back and get my ed leadership degree, which I did at Cardinal Stritch University, University while I was in Milwaukee. And then I took my first principalship at the age of 26, uh, and then served in that capacity as a middle school principal actually for three years, and then went to uh, back to Iowa. Uh, and then I was at Iowa City City High for five years and then finished my career at Bettendorf, uh, 14 years there. So 22 years in total as a school leader, uh, 26 years in education, still doing the work today. And then, um, yeah, so five years ago, it's hard to believe that it's already been five years ago that I left the profession. Um, I had the good fortune over the last three years as a principal. I also did work as a, as a, a senior um advisor for ICLE, the International Center for Leadership and Education, Bill Daggett's group. And so that's actually how I started my leadership coaching experience uh, and uh, really liked that a lot and uh, and then realized that maybe this is something that I could do, right? That I could actually branch out. And But you know how it is when you're a principal, you're a little nervous about maybe just like leaving your day job or your real job to go start a hustle or a side gig. <laughs> and so uh, then, of course, uh, just got was fortunate uh, in 2012 because of the Iowa Principal of the Year, 2013 National Principal of the Year. It actually opened up some other doors, opportunities for me. Opportunities I've always spoken as part of my work, but that became a little bit more intentional. And then once I did that, then the phone started ringing a little bit more. And so I started speaking and presenting while I was still a principal. And then it just got to the point, I'm sure many people have experienced this, that how do you find the balance between both, right? And so I realized that I could make a, a, hopefully a living at the side hustle now. And so I thought, well, worst case scenario is if I'm not successful, I'll just go back and be a principal somewhere. And so, but then Culturize comes out and then that takes off and that gave me the financial freedom to be a little bit more risky. And uh, and I've been very blessed. And so for the last five years, I've continued to do the work. The first couple of years, honestly, Tom, I was just by myself. And then again, I couldn't keep up with the work. So then I started trying to build a team around me. And that's how we ended up with Jay Costas and Associates. And then two years ago, apparently I didn't have enough to do, but I had this you know, vision and this dream of being able to start a publishing company to help other authors like myself achieve their dreams. And so 
So that's been two years in the making as well. We're going to two and a half. And I think we published about 11 books. So I feel really good about that as well and just feel very blessed. So that's pretty much where, I, where how I ended up here by accident, really, <laughs> yeah. uh, to be honest with you. It's it, it is always interesting when the, uh, the the quote unquote side hustle becomes the main hustle. Mm-hmm. And, you know, your story is uh, very familiar to me in terms of the evolution of, of uh, you know, the requests come in, they start to build. Um, next thing you know, you're having to say no more than you say yes. And you start to wonder whether it's possible to mm-hmm. to turn, again, the side hustle into the main hustle. And uh, and certainly that that's something that's, you know, it's like you say, if, if it doesn't work out, then certainly I can go back and and work in the school system. Right. And you really are just risking professional pride and and ego, I suppose, because uh, we're, you're credentialed, you have your experience and all of those things. I'm wondering, Jimmy, as you think about your own school experience as a student um, and as you went and became an educator, I, I'm convinced that every educator models themselves somewhat over at least one teacher they had uh, in the past. So as you think about you know, who you are as an educator today, is there someone from your past, uh, a teacher you had in elementary school, middle school, high school, college, it, it doesn't matter, but is there somebody that you model yourself after? Is there somebody that inspires you the, the way that you kind of go about your business that you kind of mimic or not mimic, but mm-hmm. I suppose just model yourself after? Is there someone from yeah. your past like that? Yeah, I would say there's probably three groups, to be honest with you, Tom. I think I always start, you know, when I think about that, I think back to, my, honestly, my elementary school years. I was blessed to have a kindergarten teacher, first grade teacher, second grade teacher, and really a fifth grade teacher who really um, just, I love going to school because I love them, to be honest with you. I mean, I just think they made me feel really important. I think they loved me, and, uh, and that's I appreciate that, and I've always remembered that, right? And so those people are very still very dear to my heart even today as, as they're retired today, and, and they're all living, and I know them all well, and we follow each other on social media and all those types of things. So that's certainly an impact. Uh, I didn't have a good middle school experience, to be honest with you. Uh, as a high school experience, it was, it was okay, to be honest with you, but that one individual would probably be my assistant principal, Kelly Morgan, who I talk about in Culturize, right? There's a yeah. true champion, right? There's a person who really had every reason to to quit on me, to resent me, to get just exhausted of me because I gave him every reason and yet he wouldn't quit on me, right? Which eventually turned into one of my core value, you know, definitions of being a champion for kids. And mm-hmm. and so definitely I, you know, he's somebody I hold dear to my heart, still a good friend of mine today. I love going back home and seeing him and golfing with him and and uh, just a great man, in my opinion. And then even Dr. Dan Donder, who was one of my professional mentors, um, who I, I catch myself emulating him sometimes, whether it's him or Lucia Murtaugh or Bill Andrikopoulos, these people that were very instrumental in my career professional growth, right, are people that I still continue to look up to today. So that's uh I think that's rare that you are like so many of us have just lost touch with teachers we've had or principals or assistant principals, et cetera. And the fact that you're connected to so many of the educators from your past must be just a, it's, it must be unique for you to have that perspective and for them to see kind of where your career has gone. So that's, that's a very, uh, very interesting that, and, and very cool that, that you have that connection to, to educators from your past and they can see how you've grown into the job as well. And I'm sure they're very proud of what you've done uh, and because of their influence on you as well. So now yeah, let's start proud, with they, they the, tell oh, yeah. me that, Tom. They're proud of their yeah. little Jimmy, right? Their little Jimmy. <laughs> little Jimmy. Yeah. And you know, I think you'll probably always be their little Jimmy, right? I mean, that's just yeah. how it works uh, as, as we get older. Well, I even tell uh, the story, Tom, when I took my first principalship, I remember calling, you know, like, obviously I called my parents first, right? And then I yeah. called Kelly Morgan, right? Mr. Yeah. Morgan, because it's hard for me <laughs> Mr. to call Morgan. Morgan, right? I know. So I call Mr. Morgan and uh, I tell him, these. I said, hey, we're colleagues now. 
And there's a there's a dead silence on the other end of the line, right? <laughs> and right. Uh, he he says, "Oh crap!" Right? But he didn't say crap, right? No. But, uh, yeah. but anyway, it's that idea of you know, obviously he's very proud of me. But yeah, it's really yeah. weird, right? To think yeah. that you know, yeah. here as a senior, I'm expelled from school, and yeah. literally, you know, seven eight years later, I'm we're colleagues, yeah. right? Okay, Which, you're gonna have to tell us that story, Jimmy. Uh, senior expelled from school. Uh, let's before, <laughs> before we get it, you can't drop that. Uh, on no, right that's what happens to... when you're disconnected, right? When you're not yeah. connected, right? And you yeah. feel like yeah. you don't want to be there. You're looking for a way out, and right. honestly, you don't like school. And this is this experiences that we have, right? We run a lot across a lot of students who yeah. don't feel connected, that don't feel like they belong there, and you're looking for a way out and you feel kind of hopeless that you just eventually give up and your parents won't let you quit school. So you have to finagle it, manipulate it. So what you do is you do something bad enough to get yourself expelled from school thinking, well, this is my way out. And yet here comes Mr. Morgan again, champions for me again, and helps my parents navigate a system that they don't just understand. They just don't understand an education system. Neither one of them are formally educated. So they go, he goes the bat for me, which I'm sure was really risky on his part. Right to do that and mm -hmm. to go advocate to the board to say, Hey, this, this young boy needs to be in school. Right. I know he yeah. did something not, not good, but he needs to be in school and here's why. And and then gets me back. Right. And so yeah. that's, that's a, that's, that's a great man right there. Right. So, yeah. yeah. I'm trying to imagine the conversation. Uh, hey, Mr. Morgan, uh, do you not understand what I'm trying to do here? <laughs> will, you, will you cut that out? Stop advocating for no, me. No, it's more being in his office, just balling my head off, just saying, just <laughs> let me go. go right, just, I hate being here, right? That's it's, right. It's I, I, have a, right? I have a plan here, Mr. Morgan. Yeah, uh, it's so funny, it too. It's so funny how we can't, uh, and I've experienced this on the other end. I'm sure you have as well. I've, I've met with former students of, of mine who are full adults now working as teachers and they still call me Mr. Shimmer. I'm like, it's okay. You can call yeah. me Tom. And they have a hard time doing that. It's a, it's so ingrained in us. So yeah, I think I we could tell, we could tell those stories forever. I know Mr. Morgan, there's no, no way to get around that. So let's, let's dig into the content now. Let's talk about school culture. I think everyone, and, and certainly by everyone, I mean, you know, teachers, administrators, families, students, everyone knows that developing a positive supportive school culture is essential to maximizing the opportunity each and every learner has to reach their potential. But my question is, how do we know that we've developed that kind of school culture? You know, how do we measure it? What are some metrics that we can look at that would indicate that we've culturized our school? Yeah, I mean, I think, <clears throat> you know, that's always going to be a challenge, right? When you start looking at it like qualitative data versus quantitative data, like how do you actually measure it? And how do you even know what it is actually attributed to, right? I think that's the challenge for all of us. And so one thing, when I look at school culture, Tom, first of all, I just look at the way people behave in the organization. So that's how I look at it in my head, first of all. Um, constantly, I get people's, hey, Jimmy, what's one thing that I can do to impact my culture right away in a positive way? And, and I could answer that question many ways. But one thing I always tell them is, you're already seeing it wrong. You're trying to identify one thing. And it's not one thing. It's everything, right? It's everything we do. But start with the way and looking at how people behave. How are you behaving? And how are people in the organization behaving, right? And so that's certainly an, an area where I begin. The second part is all based on the foundation of relationships, because those relationships foster trust, they foster empathy, right? These are all attributes that we need in our organizations in order to really help students achieve at high levels, to create an environment where people want to be a part of it. And so that's the challenge for always is like, how do I actually measure that? And so obviously, we do a lot of qualitative, right? So it's more like, well, tell me how you feel. What is it done? It helps me feel connected. I built confidence. I feel capable, right? So these others, 
these other ways of measuring it. But to me, when I look at culturized Tom, the over one of the overarching, there's really four premises to that. And one of those is, is to understand the overarching theme of culturized is to understand that we have to see the culture through the eyes of others, right? It's not my eyes. It's what are the experiences that others are having and how do we help them help us, right? See what we don't see. And so the idea is, is that then what are the, what are the ways that we can do that? So how do I begin to see the culture of my classroom, not through my eyes, through the eyes of my students? How do I see the culture of the building through the eyes of the staff, right? And so there's where we can begin to do practical ways of doing that. So I'm a big believer, number one, is to truly measure the culture of a classroom. In my opinion, teachers need to see it through the student's eyes. That means I need to sit down and begin to ask questions. What do you love about this classroom, right? How is second grade different than first grade? How is biology different than chemistry, right? How is, um, what is one way that, um, you know, why do you look forward to coming to class? Um, what, if I, if you became the teacher today, what's the first change you would make and why, right? In other words, they're telling you things that you don't see. And I'm, I'm a believer that we believe a culture's here, but there's really this subculture underneath that culture. And I call that subculture the undercurrents, right? That's what I see. We create those undercurrents. Teachers create them in the classroom, building principals create them in the building level, superintendents create them at the district level. We don't mean to, but we do. And so if we had practical ways to, and allowed other people to help us see that, then we could avoid the undercurrents. And those undercurrents are exhausting, right? That's what we're chasing. We're cleaning up our messes. We're having to constantly give more time to something that I don't have time to give to, right? And, and it's usually not fun time. It's usually stressful or it's confrontational or whatever happens to be the case. So um, it's really the key of being intentional and sitting down with people and asking them, hey, this is an idea I have, and I want you to help me see what I don't see. If we were to do this, what is this going to create for us? Where is the undercurrent going to come from? What is this going to do to our staff? What is this going to do to kids? Is it a fair practice? Are we asking people to do too much? Whatever that is, allow others to help you see that. So you're going to have to be really intentional and in sitting down with people and just asking them. And if you, the more you do that, the more trust you build, the more they'll tell you. If they hesitate to tell you, well, then we really haven't built those relationships, right? Enough for them to trust us to tell us. And so all these are interconnected. It's not one thing. It's, it's many things. Yeah, there's certainly no way to spreadsheet your way to uh, measuring culture, but certainly it's important to know that uh, to seek the information, right? So that Absolutely. you can gauge where where people are and what they're thinking, because otherwise, I mean, that undercurrent, as you say, is going, it exists in the school, it exists in the classroom, it exists everywhere throughout the school. We have to access it and try to access it in an authentic way that allows that trust and that relationship to grow so that you do get that honesty, so that you can address some of the issues that might be festering. Because what is the opposite of that if we don't address? Like from your perspective, if we don't do that, what is what are some of the major concerns that we should have about not seeking that information? Do we just get a false sense of what our school is like? Do we have, you know, uh, resentment building? What 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 for you are the are the ramifications of not seeking an understanding of those undercurrents? Yeah, immediately people feel they don't have a voice, right? They're not right. invested, right? We start right. unintentionally creating a culture of compliance, right? That's not good. Mm -hmm. Now right. people are doing it because, well, I have to, because if I don't, there's going to be some sort of retribution or it's going to be my evaluation or the principal is going to try to get rid of me. 
And so right. that all starts impacting morale, right? And so now we just have these constant negative undercurrents run through organizations. And I know yeah. you've experienced it. I know you're in schools all the time. I know you hear the yeah. complaints, right? Mm -hmm. Those are the undercurrents, but the principal's not trying to create those undercurrents, right? They just don't see it. They don't, they don't have a process to even understand where the undercurrents are at. And that's why it's important that we foster those relationships, that we're intentional in that, but we have to give people our time, right? The, to be a champion means, number one, do not quit on your people, whether it's your students or your staff. That means you got to be fair to them. You got to treat them with, in, with dignity, with respect, with compassion, with empathy. People want to be great. You got to believe that. That's core principle number four. Right. But also in core principle number one, to be a champion means you got to be intentional in giving your time to others. I think it's one of the most precious commodities that we can give to others. My gift of time to you means I care. I care enough to come search, seek you out. I care enough to ask and I care enough to invest time to help and support you and guide you and be there for you or whatever it happens to be. But at the end of the day, oftentimes we are waiting for something to happen before we go invest our time and sometimes it's a little late so if we can already predict see the undercurrent that we have a staff member who is struggling or or is negative or is perceived to be toxic right we've labeled these people well then i better invest more time on the front end to build a relationship so when something does happen that isn't my first interaction with this person whether that's a teacher whether that's a parent or a family or whether it's a student and if i can do that as a school leader then I'm modeling really good practices for our teachers to do the same thing. Don't wait for an issue to contact a parent. Contact a parent and start building a relationship knowing that at some point you will have an issue probably. And right. that should so, not be our first interaction. Absolutely. That's uh, that that idea of the the proactive communication and just sort of getting connected so that when you have to when you have to make those phone calls and it is when, not necessarily if you will Correct. at some point. You will at some point. That's right. That's right. You know, I've used an expression for years that uh, in talking about teachers and students, you know, and and basically adults and kids, I would say what what adults give their attention to, and I think you could substitute attention for time. What adults give their time to is what children or teenagers eventually come to believe is important. Mm -hmm. And I think we could say the same thing about principals. What principals give their time and attention to is what teachers will eventually come to see what matters to you. And the idea that you're asking the questions, you're seeking to understand the, the undercurrents, you're trying to come up with resolutions and trying to see how people are feeling in terms of the work. I think by, by being intentional about that, the undercurrent's going to evolve regardless mm -hmm. of what you do. The question is whether that undercurrent is going to be one of positivity or, or one that right. sort of drags or the how, down. Or how, how deep that undercurrent is, right? Because I always say, right. you know, all our schools have undercurrents, right? Of course. Our businesses, organizations, our homes, our families are, you know, yeah. but the more dysfunctional it is, is because that's the deeper of the undercurrent. That's the depth right. of that undercurrent, which down here is not good. You're going to get good. beat up. You're going to spend a lot of time. You're going to start getting, you know, upset and frustrated mm -hmm. and and now we're wallowing down here, but we don't realize that, well, we're contributing most of those issues ourselves. We just don't yeah. know. Yeah, so. it's divisive. It's the blame game. It's the yep. frustration. All of that starts to emerge when when that mm -hmm. undercurrent gets that deep. Now, one of the core principles in, in Culturize is to carry the banner. And this was an interesting concept because I want, I want to clarify something because you write in the book that, quote, uh, staff must harbor a deep adulation, sense of honor, and deep regard for the schools and districts they work for. Now, this can, uh, end quote. So this for me can sound potentially like a bit of that modern political atmosphere where it's like at all costs, toe the party line. And that can also feel as if dissent or challenge or tough debates are unwelcome in a school when it's like, hey, you have to have a deep adulation for our school. 
so that if I disagree with my principle, that somehow I'm being negative or I'm I'm being detrimental to the culture. So help us draw the line here, Jimmy, um, between say, for example, a classroom teacher, the line between having a deep adulation for the district, the school, et cetera, but also being able to express myself authentically without being dismissed or marginalized or labeled as being negative. Where's that line uh, for, for all teachers or, or principals when it comes to a district? Yeah, Tom, I don't know if you can relate to this, but do you ever write a book and then you read it over and over and over and you feel like it's right where you want it to be? And then about a year later, you read it again, like, crap, I should have put this that made it a little bit more clear, right? <laughs> yes, yes. The answer to that go. question, Jimmy, is yes. There you go. That's the growth, right? That's our growth, yeah. right? And yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's our opportunity to go back and and continue to work on it. So so let me, let me again, first of all, remember that the core values, first of all, let me say this. I wrote them for me. Yeah. It was my way of holding me accountable, accountable to be more of an effective leader. That's how okay. this started, right? Okay. Number two, that the core values all um, interrelate, right? Mm -hmm. It's a framework for me. So when I have to deal with an issue or have to go work with a student or a family, or even in my own personal relationships, I can quickly go to a core value and I'll frame it up differently, which hopefully means that I respond more appropriately in a more compassionate, effective way that gets me a better result. Okay. So that's yeah. where I kind of start with this. Yeah. Carry the banner has a meaning. And in the book, I don't, I didn't go deep enough to really explain. And I didn't realize this until later, but it's fine. I mean, I still talk about it all the time. So I just do it now. So number one is yes, it means to be a positive voice. It means I need to carry the banner for my school, my principal, my students, my family, my faculty, whatever. So I'm going to be a positive voice in that. That's one thing, but it also has a second meaning. And this is where I wasn't very clear, but it's to create experiences for others through my interactions that when those individuals walk away from me, they carry the banner for Jimmy Costas or they carry the banner for my school or they carry the banner for whatever, right? When Tom Shimmer and I have an interaction here, I want it to be so positive that Tom Shimmer carries the banner for Jimmy Casas, right? right? Tom Shimmer wants Jimmy Casas to carry a banner for Tom. So Jimmy Casas can say, well, you should go on Tom's podcast and you should learn from Tom and Tom's because I, there's value in that, right? I, there's a relationship, there's a connection, right? So that's part of it too. So going back to what you said, the idea that they're interrelated means this. When I say that we want to create this type of environment, then that is my responsibility from number one, from the very beginning to model that same experience for this individual. But there's other components to it, right? Because we know these are really complicated concepts that aren't just, we'll do this and this will meet, this will work. It, it doesn't work that way. So one concept, for example, is the why, you know, it's not the why of Simon Sinek, why did you become a teacher, right? Although that's one of the three whys that I talk about all the time. But it's also the why of why do people behave the way they behave and why are we doing this? So part of my job is to bring clarity that one of the expectations that I think all of us should have in education is that we should have an expectation for others to be careful to understand that we need to carry the banner for our profession, for our children, which means we don't speak negatively about our children outside the school, right? We can call it a non-negotiable. I call it an agreement or a value. We can't say we value children, we love children, we'll, we'll champion for kids, and then I go out and talk negatively about kids. 
So it is my responsibility to create the environment by first of all, modeling it to the teacher, right? Which means I'm going to do the same thing with that teacher that I want them to replicate with our kids. And so to me, clarity of expectations, I'm not saying everybody has to agree with them. And I'm not even saying everybody has, you know, if they choose not to, that's okay. But that is still my expectation. And when we are building principles, part of it is to be clear in our expectation and hold people to those high expectations, because we can't talk about excellence, in my opinion, Tom, and then go behave in ways that aren't excellent. Because then what happens is that we all lose credibility. In other words, it's just words about words. These values that we hang up at our schools, our little mission statements, and don't mean anything because we don't even we don't even model them ourselves. And so we're all hypocritical. We lose. So the idea again is if I create an environment where somebody sees that as, well, either this or this will happen to you, then I've already violated my own core value. So part of it is it is an expectation. But if they're not meeting that expectation, where am I going to begin with this? Well, why aren't they meeting the expectation? Because I believe they want to. To me, that's core value number four again, right? So I'm right. always using those four core values. So I think you ask a very good question, right? But if I create an environment that it's an either or, or if you don't do this, this is what's going to happen to you. Well, I've already violated my core principles, right? right. You're right. I'm going to be pretty ineffective and I'm not going to have a positive culture. So I can't right. violate my own core values. And so that's why I started back here. We have to understand that if we're going to create those core values and we're going to talk about them, well, I don't care what you say. I want to see you live them. Right. And that to me is how it begins. I, uh, you know, as I read that in the book, the way that I made sense of it for myself was the fact that you can simultaneously carry the banner while also having a very rich dialogue and debate. In other words, what, what I'm carrying the banner for is a school and a principal in a district that values everyone's perspective. Even if we disagree, there's open, honest, professional conversations about the direction we're going. So that even, like I say, if we disagree or if there's dissent or some sort right. of conflict in that way, it's handled professionally, it's handled respectfully. Everyone has a voice. We've created that kind of undercurrent, if you will, that allows everyone to have an equal voice at the table. So that's how I made sense of it. But I do think that there's the possibility that if, if you're not thinking and processing that closely, we don't necessarily want to just say you have to tow the company line or you have to tow the party line. Or uh, I like the way, yeah, or, 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 or right. yeah. And, and I love the way that you sort of talked about, you know, living those values mm -hmm. Uh, in, in and modeling that for everybody and, and being open and honest about that. Another core principle you write or talk about um, is, is, and you've mentioned this a few times already, is expecting excellence, right? And we know that, um, you know, this pandemic has been an acutely intense situation that has forced all educators to prioritize social emotional well-being of our students. Um, and there's no question that that mattered early on in 2020, of course, uh, in mid-2020. But what I see now when it comes to the idea of social emotional learning, I don't see this everywhere, but it's enough to notice is that SEL and the emotional support of learners is coming in some places at the expense of actual academic achievement and actual academic learning. So I'm wondering about your perspective, because I know a lot of people will assert this idea that you have to Maslow before you can bloom. But I always feel strongly that it's Maslow through Bloom, that it's it's you your social emotional well-being really is at the core, your achievement and your ability to learn and overcome and, and go through all of that. I mean, save any kind of extreme situations, of course. So I, I think that real confidence comes from, you know, this grounded expectation of academic success. So I'm wondering about how leaders can, especially during these incredibly stressful times and these emotional times like the pandemic, how do leaders 
create and therefore maintain a culture of excellence in their school, both for us professionally, but also a culture of excellence for students? Yeah, first of all, I agree with you, right? I don't think it's an either or, right? right. And very few things, very few things in our profession are an either or, right? I'm not an extreme person. Like, I don't think right. it's here or here, right? I think mm-hmm. there's a lot that goes into all those things. And I think it can be both, right? Many times. Yeah. And so, number one is we go back to the core value of expect excellence. What does that mean, right? And the idea is what we model is what we get, right? So what we're doing is we're trying to create experiences. Again, we're being very intentional that we're not going to ask others to do something in our organizations that we're not doing ourselves. So this is where being a champion is all about relationships. Expecting excellence is all about modeling, right? Mm -hmm. And I do agree with you, right? And that is a concern, obviously, you as well as I, when we're in the buildings, we're seeing a lot of this, right? So what happens, right? This pandemic comes along and our teachers they do what they think they're supposed to do, right? Which they think, oh my God, I have to really take care of the social emotional learn- learning needs of my students. And so our teachers are just exhausting themselves by going almost now they're reacting and they're going almost to the extreme of they're forgetting about the academics and focusing on the social emotional learning well-being of our children, right? Again, nothing wrong with that. I get it. No, nope, we don't judge that. And thank you for doing that. But in doing so, you're right, somewhere along the way, we stayed there, but I also believe the teachers started exhausting themselves too. So principals began to see this. And so they jumped in and started doing the same thing for the teachers, right? Hey, don't worry about the lesson plans. Hey, don't worry about, you know, the test scores. Just take care of the kids. And now they're trying to take care of the teachers, right? And so we kind of created this little system between teacher and student and then principal and teacher. And so one of the things I always worry about, well, who's taking care of the principals, right? And so then we got the superintendents, right? And so this is all interrelated a little bit. But the key to me, you're right, is this is why I believe it's never an either or. You know, in hindsight, we can go back. And that's why I'm not critical. I'm not in a school anymore, right? I don't judge people. I have been a principal for five years, right? An active principal. And so I'm not in it every day. I get to go into a building, spend a day or two days or a week with the principal, and then I leave right? They're stuck with the problem. So, but it is something that I say to them, Hey, one area that there's a potential undercurrent that we have to be really careful is, is at the end of the day, ultimately we're still responsible for academic growth and helping our students achieve and continue to move forward. So how are we going to be more intentional in doing that? So we don't stay over here off kilter and all we're doing is taking care of the needs and saying, well, we don't need to hold them accountable and they don't need to grow and all that stuff. Right. Cause at the end of the day, that's what we're still held accountable for. And that's how we're going to be measured. And so, yeah, we had a hiccup there for a year and some blended in the second year, but here's been my experience, Tom. Schools that already had a healthier culture. Okay. I'm so I'm, that's how I'm going to frame it up. I don't think went down that path as much. They started a little bit, but they still continue to move forward. And I'm in some of these schools and I've seen that their academic progress, you know, it had a little hiccup, right? A dip, but then it came back and it's got, you know, either steadied out or plateaued or some continue to rise a little bit. Right. But other schools, right? Right, right. And then here's my concern. They now blame the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And that's what I get concerned about that now that's a pretty easy cop out for us because now we don't have to hold ourselves accountable for any of this. No, this is why culture is so, so critical to the work that we do in our schools. Mm -hmm. Unhealthy culture when faced with a crisis, when faced with a significant challenge is in trouble because what it does is exposes 
exposes our weaknesses and our lack of empathy and compassion and all those types of things, and even sometimes our high expectations. And so, again, that's my concern a little bit. So my point to that would be is that we have to be intentional and being very clear, it goes back to the why, why is this important, right, that we do this? How are we going to do that? And what is my role in helping making sure that that happens, right? Right. right. And so again, it's a constant reframing. That's what I call it. It's a constant reframing to helping our people move forward so they don't fall back and get stuck. And yes, we, it doesn't have to be either or. Continue to take care of these. But at the same time, part of that is helping kids achieve so it continues to build their confidence, right? That impacts their social emotional well-being. If we're investing time, they're connected. That makes them feel right. If they build, if they feel capable, right? All these things. So again, it's not an either or, but I do like the way you phrase that. It's a whoop, right? Yeah, yeah. Right there together. So anyway, those are my thoughts on it. No, I appreciate that. And certainly, you know, I would, I always say to people, look, I draw a really thick line between what happened in the spring of 2020 when it was shock and awe and we didn't know what this pandemic, I I will not critique anything anyone did. I'll give you those three months, right? I'll give you those three months. Yeah. Going into the fall, I think what's happened in some places is things have become a new habit. And I, what I see from an assessment perspective is I see a lot of students, or at least I hear from teachers who say that more than ever, students feel like they don't have to do anything, that there's a level of apathy that's kind of set in. And I think we have to take some responsibility for that by by continuing or perpetuating the idea that there was no expectation of performance. And I think you're absolutely spot on what happens in in a pandemic or any stressful situation, it's a magnifying glass. It magnifies whatever your culture is will get magnified under those stressful situations mm-hmm. and it will get exposed and, and you'll yep. start to see that. It's, it's not irreversible and certainly uh, your core principles would help schools uh, and leaders sort of lead that work and getting, getting the culture back to where it needs to be. But certainly that's my concern is that we, we have to keep our eye on the, the 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 level of excellence and you can become almost over the top with being so f- like, or swing the pendulum, if you will, is probably yep. a better way mm-hmm. of expressing that to the SEL side that we forget about the academics. And I think there's so many who remind that it's, it's, it's Maslow through Bloom. It's not Maslow instead of Bloom. Mm-hmm. Can we finish up now talking? Cause I, I love this part because I speak a lot about this when it comes to assessment, about assessment, building hope and efficacy, as well as measuring achievement, that there's a human being on the other end of it. And of course, one of the, other core principles in Culturize is uh, being a merchant of hope. Uh, it's your contention that uh, it's everyone's duty to foster a culture of hope, trust, and personal investment. And I agree with that. Like I said, one of my core principles as well in assessment with my colleagues and I, we talk a lot about hope and efficacy when it comes to, to assessment and the emotional impact and the hopefulness and all of that. So that said, you know, that that idea. I'm interested in how you define hope. When we, you know, it's one of those things where everybody talks about hope, but how do you define hope? How do I know that a student is maintaining hope? And what are the specific things we can do to to build that hope in our students? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, again, to be a merchant of hope for me, the way I defined it was two ways. Number one is that everybody deserves to be a part of something great, right? Everybody deserves to have those opportunities to have those experiences. And even more so, how do we create an environment where everybody has an opportunity to actually leave their legacy in some capacity, right? In other words, to leave their impact. I think we all went into the profession, Tom. I mean, I'm not sure that I'm, I'm sure there's some exceptions somewhere, but for the most part, I think most of us went in the profession because we want to make a difference. We want to make an impact. We believe, right? We believe that we had something to offer that could help others. Right. Many of us had that service mentality, right? That servant leadership mentality. 
And so the idea is this is everywhere I go, you know, especially right now, there's I can go into some states and they're given transformational grants, right? To transform teaching and transform learning, to transform grading, right? Whatever it happens to be the case. But the problem is, in my opinion, is we're talking again about transforming these ideas. But yet I run across people who haven't transformed this. In other words, I don't really think they believe they can do it, right? They don't believe every kid can do it. That's for sure. I hear this all the time, right? You do too, I'm sure. But we also do the same thing to adults. So I'm a big believer, first of all, you got to transform this. You got to believe that you can actually make a difference. You got to believe that. And I talk a lot about going back to the interview chair, right? You go back and sit in that interview chair and you tell me what you said when you sat in that interview chair. I'll tell you what you said. That you believe in all kids. You believe all kids could learn, right? You talked about how you want to make a difference. You talked about how you would never quit on kids. You talked about how, why you became a teacher. And now here we are two years, five years, seven, 12, 24, 34 years later. And our conversation in that interview, right? What we talked about, what we believed in, our behaviors today don't mirror that anymore, right? And the question is why? I don't know, but that's going back to those three whys. That's where I always stay as one of my frameworks is I'm always wondering, well, what happened to them? Why? Why don't they believe this anymore? And how do we get people to go back to that interview chair? Because I think that's the real person. That's where I believe that core value number four says, no, Jimmy, everybody wants to be great. They sat in that interview chair. They wanted to make a difference. So what has happened to them? And this is personal for me because I too lost my way, right? I became that person I never wanted to become, right? I became a little resentful, not really believing that all kids could do it, right? Taking it personally, And so I became someone I never wanted to become. So that core value for me was for me personally, but also to remind me that Jimmy, don't judge these people. You were the, you became the same person. So inside that person is somebody who really wants to be great. You have to give them the hope that they can find themselves out. And so one of my charges was Jimmy, you got yourself out. So, or with the help of others, help these people get out because that will inspire you to believe that you can do it with everybody. And that's why I say these aren't perfect formulas, Tom. And I, I'm very transparent about that. Hey, nothing is perfect in this world. There's no guarantees. But I will say this, that if you begin to see it through a different lens and you change you, in other words, this is about you becoming a better version of you, you change the way you approach this, you change that, you will get a better result. You will get a better result. Mm-hmm. And I do believe that. And I can almost guarantee that in every case. And so the idea is then is to believe that everybody wants to be great, but I'm also not a magician. It's not my job to save people and to, you know, it's my job to me to reflect on my own behavior, bring my best version to this individual and be all in. And I may not make a difference and they still may not get to where they, I want them to get to, but it isn't because I didn't believe that they could. Right. And that's how we have to see it. In other words, an easy example is this. Don't tell me you're going to go talk to the student or this teacher, but it ain't going to make a difference to me. I'll go talk to them, but I'm telling you, it ain't going to make a difference. That's just the way this teacher is. That's the way this kid is. That's the way this family is. Yeah. Well, then don't go talk to them because it's, it's hypocritical. It's disingenuous. Believe yeah. it. Believe it first because if you don't, they'll know it right away. Yeah. And so to me, hope is about believing in others. It's not necessarily define it but believing that others want to be better and want to be great because at some point they did. 
Right. And so how do we help them find that back again? How do we help them make them become better versions of themselves? So yeah, that's that, that, that mindset is so powerful. Uh, I think one of the most lethal expressions in education is you don't understand, Jimmy, our kids can't do that. Uh, that is a, an absolute, because if you say that, they probably won't. And, they won't. and, our, and our, collective, yeah. our collective ability to help all learners reach high levels of intellectual performance, social competence, all of that. It starts with our, our mindset mentality. That doesn't guarantee, as you say, it's not a, not a magic trick. Right. It's not a guarantee, but at least we have to operate under that principle. That's so right. I really appreciate that. Two questions left as we finish up here today, Jimmy. Uh, these are two questions I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. Uh, here's the first one, and you can take this in any direction you want to go, but the question is simply, educationally speaking, what keeps you up at night? Well, uh, heartburn. Um, educationally speaking, not the stages of life. <laughs> I, I forgot about that part. Old age, <laughs> old age, that's right. Um, Blurry no. vision. I don't know. What are we talking yeah, about? Yeah. That, I don't know yeah. if it keeps me up at night, but certainly it worries. Right. And, and yeah. right now it's, it's what's happening, you know, nationally across. So here's what I'd say. Again, I don't expect people to agree with me. Right. These are just my personal opinions on things, sure. but of course. Number one is I would say this, as I think our profession has always struggled with a little bit of a stigma is that I feel like our profession has never felt valued enough, that right. we've never been paid enough, that people don't appreciate us enough, right? And and we always had this bond between us that we felt like the outside was not respecting us as profession, right? Mm -hmm. And we saw this like, little turn here at the pandemic where parents started realizing, oh my God. I have no idea. I want these kids to go back to school because I can't deal with this. I don't know how you do it, right? And then we saw it turn again, right? Where it turned again. And this is just yeah. crazy, right? Yeah. My thing that bothers me now, probably more than anything, is I do worry about our profession overall. What's the long-term impact? And what's the recovery time for people to take pride in wanting to become an educator, to be a teacher, to be a principal? And part of the issue I see now that worries me in the past, maybe not as bad, but now with social media and everything and the influence that people do have, I do worry about our profession. If we continue to complain about how terrible this profession is and how we're underpaid and how no one appreciates us, and we continue to share that narrative, then I wonder who's going to want to be a teacher, Tom. Yeah. I wonder who's going to want to be a principal. And I think we have to be really careful about that. And I think we can still say, hey, these are some things, concerns, and here's what we're working on. But I feel like we've gone so far to the extreme of, I mean, if I see one more post about somebody crying themselves asleep tonight because they're so exhausted and because no one appreciates, I mean, no one's going to want to become a teacher. And I think we're already seeing this, right? We've already seen the reports coming out from different universities about the number of students going into the education profession, almost 50% reduction in the last 10 years. And, and that scares me. And this pandemic has not helped because I do think people now, and I get it. I think this is what people are feeling. I believe that. I think it's real. All I'm saying is quit sharing that with the world because I don't show how we convince our next generation to go, come do this job right. when that's the narrative we keep sharing. So that's what yeah. I would say worries me. 
it's such a a good point because you know we've always fought for uh, a credibility uh, status within society from the external world but if inside the education world now you're also hearing these grievances being aired and you know there is there is uh, also a little bit of that sensationalism that we're susceptible to when it comes to social media for sure mm-hmm. and and maybe over dramatizing some of it and i'm not trying to be dismissive of what people are feeling right. but, we need but I certainly i think it, i think you bring up a good point that we need we to be champions be for the profession That's yeah right. we've got to be careful Right. for sure. Right. Okay. Last question as we finish up today, Jimmy, uh, it's a question about uh, success. It's a question I ask everyone again, and it's simply if a random person stopped you on the street, you can talk about this personally or professionally or however you want to go. If a random person stopped you on the street and asked you, what is your definition of success? How would you answer them? Yeah, I saw the question, Tom. This is a, this is a tough one, right? Because I think you go many different directions. But I think the at the end of the day, I just go back to my why, right? Like I know my why, and I've known it for the last seventeen years. I really have, you know, because I lost my way. I already told you that earlier, right? Yeah. I yeah. I was yeah. one of those people who started losing hope and became what I call an awfulizer, right? Yeah. And blaming blaming other people for my own shortcomings, right? And mm-hmm. so today, my why is I I truly go into every situation, every relationship, every conversation, every school I work with, every interaction, whatever, is to believe that my why is to inspire others to believe that they can be more and do more than they ever thought possible. That's Mm -hmm. what I try to do. I try to inspire people to say, no, you can do that. You can be that, right? Mm -hmm. And so then I look at those three C's from Culturize, right? So I try to do that by first making a connection, right? Making a connection, helping people, right? Build their confidence. And then if they build the confidence, then maybe they feel capable. And so how do I define that? I guess I go back again to, you know, my own responses. I mean, I I feel like I know my impact because I just know it because of the interactions and relationships that I have with people, right? So Mm -hmm. as a servant leader, right? As a person who serves others to really hopefully inspire them, I mean, it does make me feel successful or make me feel good. Like I've made an impact, right? Just like the same reason I went into the profession the first time with kids is now with adults is I want principals to say, because of you, you help me. You know, I, I feel more confident. I feel more capable, right? I feel like I can do this job. I, I look forward to coming to work now. And so from that perspective, I feel like that helps me feel like I'm doing something right. The right. fact that we started a publishing company, we're giving people an opportunity to fulfill their dreams, right? To take authors who have never published a book and say, oh my God, you know, again, I, it's constantly looking at ways to help people come, become better versions of themselves. And then the last point I would make, even in my own company, you know, most of my associates are still practitioners, right? I know I'm not. So I surround myself with people who are still working principles, right? They're going to leave their building, go work with a school and go back to their building. And one of the things they say all the time, which I love is, is I love doing this because it helps me become a better principal. Mm-hmm. Because when I go into those schools, I have to question myself and reflect, am I doing the things that I'm asking them to do? And therefore, it actually helps me. So at the end of the day, I want to inspire people to become better versions of themselves. And that's yeah. what I try to do. And hopefully, in some small way, we're doing that a little bit, not just individually, but as a company as well. Yeah, that is uh, definitely a definition of success I can get behind, making a difference and inspiring others to be better. Listeners, the book is Culturize. I think I mispronounced that earlier, so I apologize, Jimmy. Culturize, it's a tongue twister for me. It's uh, pretty simple. uh, I just make up words, Tom. I just make up words all the time. Why not? We might as well. But uh, I would definitely recommend that uh, as a read. You can also follow Jimmy on Twitter and Instagram. The handle is at Cassis underscore Jimmy. You'll find Jimmy Cassis and Associates on Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube. 
The website is jimmycassis.com. And, and Jimmy, tell us a little bit about your other weekly YouTube show with Joe. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, we just started us about a month ago. We've been talking about it for about a year, but you know, like everything else, right? We got so many things going on. Like, when are we going to time to do a weekly show? I said, but if we call it a weekly show, that means we can do it anytime during the week, right? Because with right. our travel schedules and everything, but right. really it was right. just an opportunity. And we talked about a podcast early on, but then we thought we kind of want to do a show, but really it's just an opportunity, honestly, for Joe and I to get together. I don't get to see him enough and we're really good friends and we just want to spend some time together. And we thought- right. What do we have in common? Well, we love to talk about it, you know, leadership. And yeah. and so let's just start something. And and also let's create a platform where people can come on the show and talk about the things they want to talk about too. And yeah. and so, yeah, it's just something to do. And we're enjoying it, having fun. We're about a month into it. We've had like four or five episodes and I feel like we're getting a pretty good following already. So we're having a good time. So hopefully helping Fantastic. someone along the way again. Excellent. Fantastic. You'll find that on YouTube. Jimmy, this was great to have you here. Great to meet you. Uh, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate it. God bless my friend. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to address a question that I've received several times over the past few weeks in different workshop sessions, and it came up again last week when I was in Richfield, Utah. So I thought it might be a good topic for the podcast. And the question I get asked a lot is, Tom, how many questions should I have on a summative assessment? Now let's be clear, there is no magic answer or no magic number. What you need is enough. You need enough evidence to make an accurate judgment or determination of the degree to which the student has met the learning goals. That's what we would call adequate sampling, which as I've mentioned previously on the podcast just means I have enough evidence to allow me a level of precision in my decision making. Now that can mean one of two things. It can mean one, I have asked enough questions to gather an adequate sampling of evidence, or two, it can mean that the singular demonstration is thorough enough to allow me to see an adequate sample within that singular demonstration. So essentially, you need to ask enough questions. That's the answer. How many questions should I ask? Enough. But enough can also mean other things as well. So while I was working with this high school math team last week, they asked me to audit one of their summative assessments. They, we looked at an end of unit test, okay? So we went through the usual stuff. First, I asked the question, what standards are you assessing or are being assessed on this assessment? And they identified them. And we're not gonna get too detailed here because I wanna get to the, the important part of this sort of topic. So we identified the standards and we looked at the standard. We identified its cognitive complexity by identifying the verb in the standard. Uh, which tells us where that standard is on the taxonomy, which helps us with the assessment method. It was, it was a standard that had to do with writing functions. And then, you know, beyond that, we had to look at the depth of thinking. What, what is the DOK level of the standard? And that usually is found behind the verb. It gives you a little bit of indication as to the depth of knowledge or the degree to which the student must meet the verb, right? So then we looked at the assessment and we asked, are there any questions on this assessment that assess less than the full cognitive complexity of the standard? Now, to be clear, this is a standards-based end-of-unit assessment. There's nothing wrong with assessing less than the standards because as I mentioned last week, you can't teach without assessment. But the mixing of both standards and targets on the same end-of-unit assessment can actually make determining proficiency a little more challenging. Now, I always use, of course, the recipe analogy. Are you assessing the ingredients or the meal or a little bit of both? 
if it's a mixture of questions that mirror the learning progression, right, all the recall up front, the actual standard at the end, then any ratio that emerges from this assessment is essentially useless because a ratio on items that are not comparable seems kind of pointless. A ratio is limiting anyway, don't get me wrong, but because it doesn't account for the type of error made or the difficulty of the task, but the ratio can mean a little bit more if the questions of the task at least are comparable. Okay, difficulty matters um, because a low percentage on some very challenging tasks can actually be an indicator of high success, right? Think of baseball. If you hit 300 for a decently long major league career, you're probably going to be a Hall of Famer, and that's a 30% success rate. So a low percentage on a very difficult task can actually be successful. So I'm not advocating percentages here, but again, at least if you're going to use percentages, the questions need to be comparable or the ratio to me is kind of useless. Anyway, so we're going through the assessment and I asked the question, do you think you have enough questions or enough evidence on this assessment to make an accurate judgment? And what followed is really the point of why I brought this to the podcast this week. Two of the teachers, and I have to say the rest of the group confirmed this through sort of nonverbal nods and communication, um, the rest agreed. They said that they used the test along with what they had seen in class. And I pressed them further on that. And uh, they said that they have students practice the standard in class and that they interact with individuals asking questions. They interact with the group. So they really have already seen the students in class demonstrate degrees of understanding of the standard. They said, and this is, this is word for word, they said, we kind of already know where they are before the assessment. I love that. Now, my response to them was this. Well, if that's true, then the end of unit assessment is just an assessment designed to confirm what you already suspect or know. Again, just confirm what you already suspect or know. And then I asked them this. So you're telling me that if you were unable to give this end of unit test, you would still be able to determine each student's level of understanding or proficiency based on what you had already seen in class so far. And they all answered in the affirmative. They all answered yes. Four levels. Does the student have a deep understanding, a competent understanding, a partial understanding, or are they still a novice? Remember what Leanne Young said on the podcast back in April of 2021. Formality is not akin to validity. Evidence is evidence. Length is so overrated when it comes to assessment and is actually a distraction sometimes to what is effective. Tests don't need to be long. You need enough evidence to make an accurate judgment, but the key is to realize that at the end of the unit, your judgments are not starting from scratch. You have seen them demonstrate in class. You've heard them talk about their learning. They've asked you questions. They've answered questions. You have evidence. So... That, along with the fact that if our focus is on grade determination and not grade calculation, then every interaction you have with your students contributes to your understanding of the overall picture. So the question really isn't how many questions. Well, look, I mean, to some degree it is. I get that. But think of it this way. Start by thinking to yourself, what evidence of meeting the standard in its totality do I have so far? Okay, remember the distinction between targets and standards, the ingredients versus the meal. And this is where you need to be pretty tight and pretty tough on yourself and your assessments, okay? A meal is when the ingredients are combined. 
having a collection of ingredients is not the meal. So it's not a collection of targets. It's actually when the targets are all put together into the standard. Okay, so what evidence do I have so far? And then I design the summative assessment to fill in what I consider to be missing or just one more opportunity for me to gather more evidence so I can make an accurate judgment, right? You've heard me say this many times before. Summative assessment does not have to be a thing. Summative assessment is a moment in time where the teacher considers the preponderance of evidence and then determines the degree to which the student has met the learning goals. So again, create a summative assessment that asks enough questions or provides enough evidence to confirm what you already suspect or know. Okay, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. Also, please email the podcast, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com, if you've got questions for Assessment Corner or any suggestions you have for the podcast. And remember to check out the show notes for the links for the upcoming uh, trainings happening this spring, Grading from the Inside Out, Standards-Based Learning in Action, and also the link for the upcoming summer conference, July 18 through 20, in Austin, Texas, the annual conference on assessment and grading. Next week, my guest will be teacher and podcaster Che Cheney. You might recall Pav Wander being on the podcast back in November. Well, Che is the other half of the Che and Pav show. So Che and I are going to talk about a number of different educational topics as well as podcasting. Please subscribe, rate, review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, but anywhere you can leave a rating and a review would be most appreciated, of course. And if you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, or on social media. I would also really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone. 